Section 4 of Criminal Investigation, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Liz Trollinger, Vienna, Virginia. Criminal Investigation, A Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers, and Lawyers, Volume 3, by Hans Gross, translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam. Bodily Injuries and Poisoning Continued. Section 5. Marks on the Bodies of Persons Strangled or Hanged. All the questions connected with this subject may be summed up in one. Was such and such a death by hanging a murder? Was the person assassinated before being hung? It is a fair presumption, a presumption which experience shows to be well-founded so far as India is concerned, that a considerable proportion of so-called suicidal deaths by hanging are really caused by another hand. Of course, in such cases the murderer will not select a mode of death leaving two distinct traces. One would not hang up, under pretense of suicide, a person killed by a gunshot wound or with a fractured skull, but this is frequently done in cases of poisoning, strangling, or even killing by means of a fine and long stabbing instrument. Recently a servant in an anatomical laboratory at Krakow was condemned for having killed his wife by driving into her heart a long needle. The case was as follows. Knowing the exact position of the heart, the murderer thrust in the needle and prevented any bleeding by pressing his finger over the wound. Then he hung up the body so as to simulate suicide, which was all the easier as the left breast of the woman being extremely developed and pendant concealed the minute wound. If he had not boasted about it one day when drunk, the crime would probably have never been discovered. We constantly read in the daily papers of mysterious cases of hanging without any apparent motive, but how rare it is to read that in such a case an inquiry has been instituted to see if it was not a case of poisoning. Many of these victims, again, have been strangled, a sure and less dangerous method, as the proof of murder is much more difficult. A person may be rendered almost instantaneously unconscious or even killed by pressure on the carotid arteries and the vagus nerve. Everyone knows how easily unconsciousness is produced in a few seconds by placing the palms of the hands on the cheeks near the ears and pressing strongly with either thumb on the corresponding carotid arteries. The pressure on the arteries prevents the flow of blood to the brain. Unconsciousness follows, and finally death. The same result ensues when one throws from behind, round the neck of the victim, a cord, a cloth, or, like the thugs, a silk handkerchief, and drags it forcibly towards one. The victim cannot defend himself or cry out or make any noise. He dies quickly bearing no other mark save those of strangulation. If, then, the body be hung up, care be taken to place the cord approximately over the marks of strangulation, it will be almost impossible to prove that death was not due to hanging. A long line of medical jurisprudence has established that marks of strangulation inflicted on a living person 
are hardly, if at all, to be distinguished from those produced on a corpse, especially if death be very recent. Moreover, the characteristic symptoms of death by hanging are also those of death by strangulation. The bluish discoloration of the face, the froth on the mouth, the protrusion of the tongue, the erection of the penis, the increased secretion of mucus in the sexual organs of the female, and many other so-called infallible signs. These signs may be absent in deaths of this nature and may be found in cases of death by other means. It must not be too precipitately concluded that a third person has intervened, for there are many instances of suicides having attempted death in various ways before having recourse to the rope. It is not uncommon to find on the bodies of suicides by hanging marks of ineffective gunshot wounds. In one case, an old woman, after inflicting several severe wounds in the region of the heart, stopped the hemorrhage, carefully washed away the traces of blood, and then hung herself. In another case, an old man first gave himself several severe blows on the head with the hammer and then turned himself off. Accordingly, the investigating officer, in the case of one of these doubtful suicides, must above everything seriously weigh all the exterior circumstances of the affair. To begin with, he will read any farewell writing that may have been left by the supposed suicide, without, however, deeming it a conclusive proof, and, if possible, will compare the handwriting with an authentic manuscript of the deceased. If it be impossible to do that on the spot, he can at least see if the handwriting orthography and style of the document correspond with the education and culture of the deceased. If the document disclose any motive for suicide, and it be easy to verify whether such motive be well-founded, as for instance, financial embarrassment, family troubles, bodily suffering, the suicide will appear less suspicious. But, if no motive be disclosed or only such vague motives as disgust of life or fear of some unknown disaster, suspicion will be increased. It will be the same if the terms of the document are such as to suggest some sudden mental disturbance not existing beforehand. The investigating officer must not forget to verify whether or not the paper, ink, and pen with which the document is written belong to the deceased. If they do, still that will not be a proof of suicide, for the murderer may have been able to write the false letter on the spot after the perpetration of the crime. But if there cannot be found among the possessions of the deceased paper similar to that of the document, and if the latter has been certainly written with another ink than those possessed by the deceased, the affair becomes very suspicious. It must be remembered that carefully disguised crimes of this nature rarely occur among very poor people whose ordinary motives are robbery, succession to property, jealousy, revenge. But such ingeniously contrived crimes are, so to say, the privilege of the better classes. One rarely finds in European countries such pretended suicides among the peasants on the thrashing floor or in the open air but in the bedchamber or workroom of the deceased, where it is possible to proceed to investigate on the spot and find the paper, ink, and pen. While in India, also the most ingenious crimes of this class are to be found among the better classes, in the mansion, mutt, or temple, 
yet the primitive idea is common enough among the lowest classes, and it is an ordinary device of the countryman to suspend the murdered corpse from a tree or throw it into a well. At the same time, it can be established, if there has been any robbery, if the deceased left an heir, anyone in short who would profit by the death. The next step will be to examine the instruments of strangulation and the mode of its employment. It must be determined if the cord, ribbon, strap, shawl, cloth, etc., employed is the property of the deceased. If third parties had easy access thereto, and, above all, whether the instrument of crime has been carefully chosen with a view to its special purpose, it cannot, of course, be denied that intending suicides frequently have recourse to instruments badly adapted to their object as braces, weak cords, etc., but this almost always happens when either they have no other means handy or act with such precipitation as to render a careful choice impossible. This is notably the case with insane persons, but as a rule of suicide proceeds to choose his instrument with the greatest care and minuteness, he takes precautions that it is strong and safe, that the knot runs easily and rapidly, and, above all, strange as it may appear, that the material coming in contact with his body should not hurt the skin. It is for this reason that the suicide so often selects cloths, shawls, thick and soft ropes, etc. Very rarely is iron wire used. In one case only, to the knowledge of the author, was a chain used for hanging, and that was not a case of suicide. A woman passed a chain round the neck of her husband when dead drunk, threw the free end over a beam, and so suspended and strangled the unfortunate man. When she found suspicion rest on her, she hanged herself in turn, but selected for the purpose a soft handkerchief. In every case, the investigating officer must be careful to describe with exactness the instrument, whence it comes, its nature and size, and the mode in which it has been used, so that if at a later date suspicion should be aroused, he possesses a basis for further investigations. It must be remarked again that the best means of observing important details is to write down with scrupulous exactitude the description of how everything is found on the spot. So long as one only looks on the scene, it is impossible, whatever be the care, time, and attention bestowed, to detect all the details, and especially to note various incongruities, but these strike us at once when we set ourselves to describe the picture on paper as exactly and clearly as possible. This point can never be sufficiently impressed on the young investigating officer. It has frequently happened that important circumstances have been overlooked which, as the dictation of the report was proceeded with, were noticed and threw a flood of light on the affair. Naturally, to obtain this result, one must proceed slowly and methodically. It is easy to understand that one takes note of contradictions, omissions, improbabilities when one reasons from the general to the particular from cause to effect, from preceding events to succeeding, from intention to action. Artists readily appreciate this when they recollect that defects in a drawing are most easily and surely detected when it is looked at in a mirror. So here, the exact description of the surroundings is, so to speak, the mirror in which all defects of the situation are reflected. 
but the defects of the situation are just those contradictions, those improbabilities which occur when one desires to represent the situation as something quite different from what it really is, and this with the very best intentions and in the purest belief that one has worked with all the forethought, craft, and consideration imaginable. But this is not always the procedure, especially in great crimes. There, with hardly an exception, the investigating officer can discover the grand blunder, which the most experienced and crafty criminal rarely fails to commit. Take an illustrative case. The scene was the room where a man was supposed to have hung himself. The investigating officer was sent for before the corpse was cut down. Absolutely trustworthy evidence showed that nothing had been changed or disturbed. The body was hanging in the middle of the room from the bracket of a chandelier, the feet about 18 inches from the ground and absolutely isolated from a chair or any other object. As far as seats were concerned, there were in the room, which was the office room of the deceased, only an office chair, two sofas, and an ordinary chair. The office chair was, as usual, at the desk, the sofas in a corner beside a smoking table, and the ordinary chair was beside the office chair, covered with books and papers. At first, the investigating officer observed nothing extraordinary, but dictating his report, the idea suddenly struck him. But how did the man hang himself? It happens often enough that persons attempting suicide by hanging remain standing upright while passing the cord round their neck and then let themselves fall forward. See illustrations in Taylor's Medical Jurisprudence. 4th edition, volume 2, pages 56, 57, 58. The body is then found in an inclining position, often on its knees and sometimes almost lying down. But if the feet are separated from the floor, the victim must have attached the cord to a nail, a bracket, top of a door, etc., while standing on a chair, stool, box, etc., then passed the noose round the neck and leaped from the support or kicked it away with his feet, and if the feet do not touch the ground, and there be no chair or other support near, the only conclusion is that another hand did the deed. So it turned out to be in this case. There was neither suicide nor murder. The old man, who was an invalid, had been placed by his relations in charge of two servants, who went out one night to a ball without permission. On that very night, the old man had a stroke apoplexy, dying alone and uncared for. To escape being taxed with their neglect, the two servants, a footman and a cook, resolved to pretend that the old man had committed suicide. With the help of a long dusting brush, they attached the rope to the chandelier. The footman lifted up the body, and the cook put the rope round the neck. The only thing they forgot, in their hurry to rob their master's safe, was to put a chair beside the corpse. Above all things, it is to be remembered that every complicated situation does not point to murder. Some years ago, the wife of a peasant in Galicia was found dead in a well. On the corpse being pulled out, the magistrate noticed on the neck of the corpse strong marks of strangulation. It was concluded that the peasant had strangled his wife and thrown her into the well, whereupon the man was arrested. Only after some time had passed by was the true cause of the marks discovered. The people who had pulled the corpse out of the well had been clever enough to put a noose round the neck and so drag it up. The woman had without doubt, in a fit of melancholy, thrown herself into the water. End of section 4
Recording by Liz Trollinger, Vienna, Virginia.